Hi everyone. Today I am joined by Dr. Kathy Romer, an astrophysicist at the University of Sussex. Dr. Romer has been an astrophysicist for a very long time, having worked at Carnegie Mellon, the University of Edinburgh, the University of Manchester, and others. She spoke about her interest in X-rays emitted from galaxy clusters. So, what path have you taken to become an astrophysicist? Oh, okay. Um, well, I think I first came across astrophysics rather than, you know, astronomy, you know, seeing TV shows and stuff when I was doing my A-levels. Um, we did a, a module on astronomy. Um, and before that, I kind of assumed that I was going to go into medicine, but there were just things about that that little module that really I loved. You know, I love learning about magnitudes. I remember hearing about quasars for the first time. And that made me think that instead of going to university to study medicine, I go to university to study astrophysics. So uh, there weren't many courses in astrophysics available at the time. That was in the mid 80s. Um, so there were a few universities offering a course called physics with astrophysics. And I applied to basically all the universities offering that. Then I got a lot of offers, but uh, I ended up going to Manchester because on the day I went, it was sunny and they served cream cakes and I love cream cakes. And I have to say that was probably the last time it was ever sunny in Manchester. Again, it rained pretty much every day. Um, but Manchester is of course a great university. And then um, <clears throat> I did, I really liked the course. I especially like doing lab. Um, and I love being a student. It never occurred to me that you could get a job as an astrophysicist. Um, but, you know, we were aware that there was the route that you could go into to do a PhD. Um, and that was, and I partly knew about that because my mum had a PhD. She has a PhD in um, a biological science. And so, I, you know, I knew that people could do a PhD. So um, I decided that, you know, I liked astrophysics. I liked being a student. So I started looking around for PhD programs. Um, and I ended up in Edinburgh. Um, and, you know, it was kind of, I kind of fell into it. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I was very, very lucky with the supervisor who interviewed me um, and got me interested in the particular field that I still work in, which is clusters of galaxies. I don't think I'd even heard of a cluster of galaxies before I'd gone to my interview. This is in the days before there was the internet. So, you know, I had my, I had a few textbooks, but we didn't know anything really beyond, you know, the curriculum. Um, and yeah, they're just, just wonderful objects. In fact, the, um, the first press release image that Joe Biden showed from the James Webb Space Telescope was of a cluster of galaxies. So I was like, yay! <laughs> when I saw that because um, there's just so much physics that goes on in them so astronomy is a beautiful subject but ultimately it's a visual representation of physics that you'd learn in a textbook that you'd learn in a laboratory it's just a really cool way that physics happens um, and then after my PhD by that point I traveled a lot um, I went to because I was using telescopes um, in Chile and also in Australia. Um, I've been to a few conferences in the States. And so, you know, I'd, I'd made enough contacts that I was able to secure a postdoctoral position in the States. Um, 
and then you know you just sort of proceed along that route um because i had a lot of ideas um and i was working the the, the particular specialism i have in clusters of galaxies is x-ray astronomy and that has to be done from space <clears throat> as we're uh, fortunately for humans like x-rays don't reach it reach us on earth otherwise if they did we'd all have cancer um and so the funding for that comes through NASA, and I was lucky enough to secure some uh, funding from NASA, and that allowed me to um, then sort of be a bit more independent and, you know, then did more uh, telescope observations, this time a lot more in the States, in Hawaii and in Arizona, and then ultimately um, started applying for um, lectureship faculty positions, and I got a position in uh, Carnegie Mellon, um, partly because I held these NASA grants. And basically, if you have money, they, they, they in, in, in the whole of academia, um, people with money are favored over people with big brains. <laughs> so <laughs> you could be incredibly smart, but not get a job if you don't have any grants. Um, and then by that time, I uh two kids and you know our parents were getting elderly so um we made the rather brave decision to move to the uk from the states um but uh i did manage to get a job at the university of sussex and i've been there ever since and um yeah so i get to do I get to do astronomy research mostly through my students now. I don't tend to do too much now. I, you know, I read their papers and I manage what they're doing, but I don't get my hands dirty on the data. But sometimes I do, and they're quite shocked. <laughs> Still have a bit of technical <laughs> ability. Um, yeah, but that was my journey. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, yeah. So clearly, you've been in this field for a long time. What are the things that you've done over your time that? you think were particularly significant or that you enjoyed a lot? Oh, without doubt, it was going to the South Pole. I was so, so lucky. Um, <clears throat> uh, when you observe the uh, the sky at millimeter wavelengths, microwave wave wavelengths, um, <clears throat> similar to the x-rays, it's quite hard for them to get through the atmosphere. But where the atmosphere is very dry, um, you can detect uh, microwaves from space. Uh, many people are familiar with the cosmic microwave background, which is a, which is a radiation relic from the Big Bang. Um, and this could that's, this can be studied from um, the far north of Chile in the Atacama Desert. If you're very very high up in the mountains where it's also a desert, then you can get the microwaves. Um, and the reason it's difficult to get microwaves is for the same reason we have microwave ovens. Microwaves are absorbed by water, so there's any water vapor, any microwaves that come from space will be you know swallowed up. So. So the, the desert in the Atacama, the Atacama Desert is a great place to study cosmic microwave background, but also um, the South Pole, because the Antarctic is also a desert um, and it's also uh, at a very high altitude. Um, and so there are quite a lot of different telescopes at the South Pole. Um, there aren't too many um, optical telescopes because there's not really a reason to you know, make all the effort to travel to the end, literally the ends of the earth. Um, but there are microwave telescopes there and there's also uh, neutrino experiments, which are actually drilled into the ice. Um, and 
I the the the, the physics that that produces X-ray emission in the um, in the clusters of galaxies um, is based on the fact that the the in between the galaxies um, is uh, it's not a complete vacuum. There's actually some gas. And this gas is left over uh, in part from the Big Bang. It's sort of, you know, the stuff that would have been there anyway, but it's also a gas that's been ejected from the individual galaxies. And because the clusters of galaxies are so massive, so heavy, um, and, um, you know, in physics, we have this thing that you have to have... Uh, you know, an energy equilibrium. What means is that the individual gas particles are moving very, very quickly. And that's equivalent to them being very hot. So even though it's very, very diffuse, it's, it's almost a perfect vacuum, the particles have a temperature because they're moving so fast. And, and whenever you heat up any form of um, atom, uh, it will lose its electrons and become a positive ion and free electrons. And once you've got this um, ionized plasma, then that will give off radiation. So this ionized plasma is so hot and there's so much of it, even though it's very, very diffuse, it gives off X-ray emission. And these free electrons that are in our diffuse plasma um, actually interact with the uh, photons that are a backlight from the cosmic microwave background. And so when you're looking at the cosmic microwave background, you can't see the individual galaxies because the individual galaxies give off starlight and starlight is an optical radiation and you're using a microwave telescope. But what you can see is the shadow that's sort of cast by the uh, electrons and it, it's a because the photons and the electrons um, interact and it's a scattering process of sorts. Anyway, so because I study the plasma in clusters of galaxies and because the plasma in clusters of galaxies impacts the microwave background, I do have collaborated with, um, you know, with, with people who work on CMB, cosmic microwave background. And when we were getting the data um, back from the South Pole, I would complain about it. <laughs> and at one point, the uh, director of this particular observatory, the South Pole, said, right, you stop complaining about our data. You're going to go down there and find out how hard it is to collect. And I think I, I just realized this when I was wearing a pair of what they call moon boots and, uh, you know, my big, my big parka and having to take a broom and dust the snow off the primary mirror of our, of our microwave telescope. And after that, I never complained again. <laughs> so that was in about 19... Late 90s, 1998, I think it was. Um, and it was uh, obviously in the summer at the South Pole. So it was the winter in the States. And, uh, you know, it was usually about minus 10, minus 15 at the South Pole. It was sunny. It wasn't particularly windy. It wasn't an unpleasant environment. You definitely, you know, they give you the, all the right kit. But when I got back to uh, Pittsburgh, which was where I was living, my husband got so annoyed because I was wandering around in a T-shirt. I was like, oh, it's so warm. You know, it was snowing outside. I was like, oh, this is nothing. And it's part because also you've been at altitude for so long, you've got all of these red blood cells. <laughs> so that was a real pain for a few weeks. But that was definitely a highlight. And then, you know, my other favorite place, and, and I'm never, and I'm sure I'll never get to go there again. And there really isn't any reason for me to go there. I'm not a microwave 
um, scientist. I'm an x-ray scientist. But the other place I really love going to is a mountain in Chile. It's not in the north of Chile, not where this um, um, cosmic microwave uh, telescope is. It's background telescope is. It's in the south of Chile. Um, and it's in the Andes Mountains, but it's not so high up. So it's very pleasant. You don't get altitude sickness. Uh, it is very sunny during the day. Um, and it's an absolutely beautiful mountaintop. And I love the telescope there. And so I've been there many, many times over my career. Um, and yeah, it's just a great place to go. Um, but again, I'll probably never go again because now astronomy is not becoming a science where people go and, you know, take their own data. It's done in a robotic fashion. And if they do need humans, the humans tend to be people who live locally. Um, it's quite a lot of obviously, you know, excellent Chilean scientists and technicians and engineers who, who work on these instruments. And, you know, they don't really need, you know, people going down on a bit of a jolly from Europe or North America to help because uh, everything's on the internet. There was one time I went observing in South Africa, and that's the only time I've been to South Africa, and it is a beautiful country, but the telescope was in this, oh, it was the back end of nowhere, which was good because the skies were clear and there wasn't light pollution, but they had two telephone lines, and that was the only connection in and out. So, every, you know, this was even before the days of the internet, so you wouldn't even consider internet but you couldn't even do email um you you know all the data had to be had to be saved on these old-fashioned magnetic tapes and then you had to put them in your luggage it was just awful <laughs> so mm -hmm. i've seen a huge change in technology um not only in terms of the instrumentation um but also in terms of the communication and the and the analysis processes we have. I mean, we used to, when we were PhD students, there was a room where there was about four little terminals and we used to just log in and it was like, you know, uh, yeah, I think people are more aware of it now because they see computers on Stranger Things. So it's like that, you know, you have a keyboard and there's a little cursor and you write, you know, a few things on it. So, um, yeah, I guess we used to do analysis, you know, pieces of paper even even back then the early 90s and so things have changed a great deal um mm -hmm. for the better other than the fact that we don't get to go to the telescopes ourselves so much so there was one time when i was a phd student i went to a conference in san francisco and it was a disco on a boat in san francisco bay <clears throat> and at the disco was stephen hawkins and he was dancing in his wheelchair because at that point he still had a little bit of motion in his hand. And uh -huh. uh, my, my boyfriend, who's not my husband, he, he, he one of his favorite stories is Stephen Hawking ran over my foot. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, yeah, it's good times, good times. Um, when you actually go physically or you went physically to these sites, what were the things you were doing like to actually operate the telescopes? What what did you need to do? Was it just helping figure out where the telescope is meant to be pointed and stuff or is it more of the maintenance and optimizing work okay so um almost exclusive in my career i've used telescopes that are far too expensive that they'd let anybody like me touch them uh there was one time i did have an observing run and i was on my own and it was in arizona and it and um it was a one meter telescope so i could do things like 
open the dome myself you know i could uh, i don't know yes I, I think i even changed the cryogens because when you've got um instruments they have to be cooled so you have to pour in liquid nitrogen and things like that um but unfortunately it was in the middle of the uh, monsoon season so it was i think the whole run was wiped out by uh, thunderstorms it was the most scary thunderstorm i think i've ever been on on that mountaintop kit peak but normally when i go observing um <clears throat> they are there are professionals there there are engineers and technicians and they make sure that the idiot astronomers don't break the telescope um you know because you could do something really stupid like uh point your very very expensive you know several you know 100 million pound dollar camera that we have at the um at the uh kip at the Cerritololo observatory in chile at the moon and that would blow the whole thing so you know they are there to stop us doing stupid things um there is software to stop you doing stupid things like that but um some of the software we we were using for uh an experiment we did uh from 2013 to 2019 the dark energy survey it it had in it you know intelligence that it wouldn't ever point the telescope near the moon but it hadn't taken into account the fact there's comets. So uh, Comet Lovejoy came across the instrument, I think on Christmas, the night of Christmas day in I think 2014. And fortunately it didn't blow the detector, but when you were sitting there in the control room and you're looking to see what the detector you know, has shown, it all went basically went from you know usually see gray fuzz with maybe a few bits of spots that bright spots that might be stars that's what you see before the images are clean cleared uh, cleaned like my colleagues were there douglas and saha and it just went bang like this and they like freaked out they're like we have broken the experiment but it was a comment and although it had uh saturated the uh the ccg chips it hadn't broken them and in fact we made a beautiful image of it it was one of the best images ever made of that comet because we had such a lovely telescope <laughs> um so what we do um in that particular experiment, Dark Energy Survey, we were monitoring for uh, data quality. Uh, a lot of the decisions of which pieces of the sky were going to be observed and in, in what particular um, uh, filters, as, as has been very clear this week, when we make astronomy images, they, they start off as just being black and white grayscale images. But if you take them through uh, several different filters, um, it's you're able to create a false color image. So the images that are coming out of JWST and have previously come out of HST that people are familiar about with, that, that that's not real color. It's it's pretend. It's to make it pretty. Obviously, when mm -hmm. there's bluer bits, they are hotter bits of the sky, and where they're redder bits, they are colder. But in a telescope like um, uh, JWST it's only sensitive to the infrared part of the sky so really it should just be shades of red but they've uh, painted it in um, so when we were doing that survey we needed to take uh, images of the sky through all the different filters um, so we could make these false color images uh, we needed to make sure that we that um, you know j just very practical things sometimes you just have to go into the uh, into the telescope dome 
which in that case is a five-story building um, and you leave the confines of your control room which is in which is actually on the ground floor because they want to isolate places that are heated from uh, the telescope just to make sure that it's not snowing or there's not ice anywhere um but but you know, previous to that, when I would go to the telescope and I had two or three nights and it would be a program that I'd uh, designed myself, I would know which galaxies I wanted to look at. And then I would decide, you know, depending on the time of the time of night, I would program in the coordinates, the telescope would move and then you'd make sure that the data quality were OK. Um, yeah. So. Um, I, you know, when I first used to go observing in the in the early 1990s, it was pretty full on. Uh, you really were working at pace for, you know, eight, nine, ten hours. Um, nowadays, because things are so much more automated, you can do stuff like you can check your email. Um, you know, back before there were the days of the internet, we used to read books. I used to read books with me observing because when you're waiting for the telescope to finish taking the data, there was, there was nothing to do. <laughs> you know, you might have a CD playing, but there was there wasn't anything to do, and you're usually too tired to do anything um, uh, difficult. So we used to read novels, but yeah, now I, I, I work, <laughs> just working at night. Has your interest always been in X-rays and galaxy clusters, or have you looked? I know you mentioned looking at microwaves as well, because your project coincided with that. So is, is that your like what you focus most of your time on? I do I do love clusters and I do still work on them. That's what I'm known for. But uh, I have done CMB work. I like exploding stars. So I've done supernova work. I like um, compact stars. So I do some work on neutron stars. Um, I like galaxies. So I've done some stuff on galaxy evolution. So yeah, I mean that's the great thing about astrophysics especially these days because there's so much data that are available that you don't have to gather yourself that you can get from um science archives that you can actually do studies you know that you've just thought about and then you can just do them on the computer um but most of the time i'm doing clusters of galaxies yeah i think i was very lucky that i met my you know it was it uh, my supervisor chris collins I went in to talk to him and he, he he said something about clusters of galaxy and went, hang on a minute, why is it gas in them? And I don't know, I think it was just because I asked that question that he said, all right, I'd like you to be my student. And it's been, I've been in love with them ever since. Uh -huh. So just coming a little bit more carb day. So obviously with the new James Webb images released, do you have anything to say about that? Were you surprised by the resolution, the scale? I think for one of the images, Stefan's Quintet, uh, one of the galaxies, I think they're saying you can see the individual stars in the galaxy, which I just think is incredible. Um, I have to say, I was staggered. I was, it's not, I don't work on JWST. And I know that, as I've mentioned, it's an infrared telescope. Um, and most of the pretty stuff in astrophysics, so I thought, happened in the optical wavelength. Um, and also the thing about infrared is it's harder to make very precise images because the the um, the you know the bigger the wavelength, the harder it is to make you know really really neat tidy images. They look a bit blurry. <clears throat> and um, 
I thought, and actually my son contacted me on the day uh, that the release was coming out. And he said, mom, what's JWST? And I said, oh, it's Hubble's, it's the HST, but supersized. And he said, are you excited? I said, well, not really, because it's uh, infrared and, you know, the images would be more blurry. Uh, the astrophysics is better, but, you know, the images won't be as pretty as HST. Was I wrong? They are incredible. When I, when I, <coughs> when I first saw the one of the cluster, I just, I just looked at it on my phone and I just kept looking. I was like, oh, because I've seen images like that for so long. It was staggering to see stuff that we never even expected. So uh, it's, yeah, it, it's like things we've seen before, but a bit different. So, yeah, when they say an image, you know, says a thousand words, that's an image that says a billion words. I was just like, going, ooh, ooh, like, <laughs> you know, literally. And I'm not normally like that when there's press releases about astronomy. Usually I'm a bit, oh, God, not this again. Um, and then since then, the other ones, of you know, the beautiful nebulae and the planets and Stefan's Quintet. Yes, they're just gorgeous. Those are eye candy. But it's the very first one that came out of the cluster of galaxies that really made me go. Ooh. So, yeah, there's so much fun going to be had from from that data. And yeah, I, I can admit I was wrong. <laughs> Those images are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, great. It was really, really great speaking to you. Uh, I, I enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for speaking to me. Oh, it's been an absolute delight. Well, best great. of luck.